Welcome to the 57th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is Joe Duran on what advisors need to know to succeed in a highly evolved client-centric world, a conversation with the founder and CEO of United Capital, now a Goldman Sachs company. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you're new to the series, I encourage you to visit diamond-consultants.com slash independence101 for the top five episodes that will help you get up to speed on the basics of the independent space, plus links to other episodes you may have missed. And if you're listening to the series on the Apple Podcast app, be sure to leave a star rating and review. It serves as a guide to us, as well as your colleagues in the wealth management industry who may be searching for valuable content to tune into. It's said that the most successful businesses are born of a culmination of experiences coupled with a strong entrepreneurial spirit that some are simply born with. And my guest today certainly epitomizes that description. Joe Duran rose from inauspicious beginnings in Zimbabwe, leaving home at 18 to travel the world. He landed in America, went to college, married, and started his financial career as an intern for a very small investment firm. By his late 20s, Joe became president of that firm, Centurion Capital, which he later sold to General Electric in December of 2001. An American dream realized for sure. But Joe being Joe didn't stop there. Although he became president of GE Private Asset Management, his entrepreneurial side wanted much more. So he left that role, went back to school, and received not one, but two MBAs and wrote a book, all experiences that were leading up to realizing his real desire. That is, to build a financial advisory firm that differed from others, one in which advisors focused on their clients' lives and what they wanted to accomplish, rather than the money and investing it. In 2005, United Capital was born, and in 2019 was acquired by industry behemoth Goldman Sachs. It's an incredible story, one that's getting even more interesting as the firm's new chapter unfolds in a world that's very different than the one in which it was founded. I'm eager to welcome Joe to the show and for him to tell us all about what lies ahead for United Capital under the Goldman Sachs umbrella. Joe, thank you so much for joining me. It's an honor and pleasure to have you on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me on, Mindy. It's great to be here. So let's start at the top, Joe. You have an interesting background for sure, and I'd love it if you'd tell us about it. Obviously, I have a bit of an accent. I grew up in Zimbabwe to a broken family and uh, arrived in America with a couple hundred bucks in my pocket and um, went to undergraduate school, paid my way, graduated from St. Louis University, and then started as an intern at a very small RIA. Uh, over the course of just under a decade, we grew that to a, fruit, a few billion dollars and sold that to General Electric. I was 34 at the time. And then 
really had a two-year non-compete after I left. I was president of GE Private Asset Management. I went to graduate school then, got MBAs from uh, Berkeley and Columbia, and started the groundwork for this new business that was United Capital, which we just recently sold a few months ago to Goldman Sachs. So I think I'm probably the only Zimbabwean who has sold two companies to Dow 30 firms in their career. So quite an unusual story and obviously it can only happen in America. Yeah, well, for sure. It's not only unusual, but an extraordinary success story. And I want to unpack a lot of what you said. We'll come back to the Goldman Sachs piece because that's surely the elephant in the room. But let's talk about United Capital for a second. So you founded the firm in 2005. Um, It was certainly a different time period than where we are now in that today going independent is mainstream. But in those days, it certainly wasn't. And it was only the outlier advisor that considered it. So where in the world did the idea for United Capital come from? The two big ideas that formed United Capital, the first was the client experience. The second was the advisor delivery of that experience. And just, you know, the first firm we had was really the first, one of the first large taps that provided wrapped ETF, mutual fund, and separate accounts to independent advisors. And that business really was formed on the back of the large custodians that were just really happening in the 90s and zeros, Schwab, Fidelity, et cetera, which allowed the independent community to happen. And candidly, it was really easy for all of the 90s and the zeros because the competition was awful. You know, the big wirehouses were overcharging for proprietary product, not doing any planning, really. They would just charge you 2% to wrap a set of mutual funds, which had your internal expenses and were proprietary. So it was really easy for an independent advisor to go out on their own deliver open architecture and deliver a much better experience. And that was really what happened in the 90s that allowed us to build a great business. And I've always believed if you're going to be successful, get in front of a big wave. In 2005, there was actually already a reasonably large independent channel, but the brokerage firms and the the big full service firms were adapting and getting a lot smarter. They'd reduced their pricing. They were going to open architecture. And I thought two things had to be true. One, that the clients had to have a significantly better experience that went beyond simply managing money and building a financial plan. We'll talk about that in a sec. And then secondly, that you needed to provide infrastructure and scale because a lot of these independent firms did not have the, the, the capital to really do things efficiently. And while they had higher payouts, they really had none of the efficiency of being at a large firm. All very true, but Still in all, there was a relatively decent size independent space. One, it certainly hadn't caught on amongst wirehouse advisors. And two, no, correct me if yeah. I'm wrong, at the time, there certainly wasn't much of a market for an independent advisor to monetize his life's work. No, definitely true. Yeah. So how much did that notion play into the launch or founding of United Capital? A lot, a lot, because, you know, it's a fairly young industry. So what happens with every knowledge industry, whether it's accounting or legal firms, typically they start as cottage industries. You know, they, you're either a big full service firm or you're in an independent lifestyle business, which is what the RIA business was in 2005. You know, it was a lot of smallish firms all over the country. 100 to 300 million would be a large independent firm. And what I thought was, like every other service business, there would be a a few large national firms that need to come out because, again, you need to have scale and efficiencies and all the rest. So I wanted to build one of the first national full-service RIAs. 
it was an ambitious goal at the time, and it turned out to be a, a good time to do that. Obviously, we went through 2007, 2008, which was not great, but it's still the, the overall ability to deliver, because of technology, a full-service experience as a smaller firm could happen. And so size and skill start to matter, bringing capital to bear. And the thing that everyone said was you can't bring in independent firms and have them deliver a consistent singular experience, which I think now people accept it. But when we started United Capital, what was really revolutionary at the time is I said, we're going to have a singular client experience. We're going to all be under one brand. And at the time, whether it was NFP or any of the other acquisition firms focus, what everyone was saying was, we're gonna keep you completely alone to keep the way you were. So what was revolutionary at the time was the idea we're gonna build one company with one ADV. Uh, that had not been done. And so I feel very proud of the work the team here did to build one single firm with really fantastic advisors all doing the same thing for clients, using their own abilities, but on one platform. Yeah, institutionalizing the process. So, and you're right, that was revolutionary. So I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But I have to ask you a question that was always on my mind whenever I thought about you. So how does a scrappy kid who doesn't come from a lot in Zimbabwe get the idea to come up with something that's ahead of the wave? What do you think it was in your background that sort of gave you the tools or the sense or what was it? What was sort of the magic potion, if you will, that brought you from there to here to have built two extraordinary companies? I mean, you've done extraordinary things. I would say a couple of things. First, I never had anything. So I didn't have parents who gave me anything. I I worked since I was 11 years old. And that forces a level of self-determination, which is very important. Second, while I am petrified of bad things happening, I have had to deal with confronting those fears my whole life. And that, that means being rational, but also realizing, you know, when you have an abusive father who punches you and you have a mom who has no regard for you and you have to feed yourself and take care of yourself, you become self-determining. And so you're not afraid of, if I can do it at 11, I can sure as heck do it at 25, you know? And so that's the first, just the ability to say it's on my shoulders and no one's going to give me anything, which is my daughters will never know because the three of them are spoiled rotten. But I'd say it was the huge secret was, hey, I can get through it. And that idea behind any entrepreneur, no matter how big or small the idea The ability to say, I can self-determine my future is a big thing. And America is the beacon of that. The second, and I'd say this is probably more direct to answering your question, is I've never been smarter or smart enough to beat everyone on the current situation. So I have to envision where things will be so I have enough time. So I just don't compete on the current playing field because I know I'm not as smart. I'm not as well-resourced. I know there are better people out there to compete against me in the current world. So I have to imagine a world that doesn't exist and be ahead of everyone else. That has always been true for me. Whether it was playing rugby or being in class, I had to envision where things were gonna go and sometimes I'm gonna be wrong, but as long as I'm kinda right and the trend is in that direction, most people are not looking out two, three, four, five years. And they're certainly not looking out 10 years. And I've always believed if I look out five plus years, and make decisions as to where I think things will be five years from now, then I'm going to have enough time to have an advantage. Uh, And that has really always been true for me. So when I look out now at the business, 
I don't look at the current state. I look at where I think things are going five years from now. That was true in 2005 when we started United Capital. It was true in, in 1992, 93 when we were building a Centurion Capital. The idea that we can't compete with the current status quo, we have to compete on where things are going. That's where we'll have the advantage. That's extraordinary, actually. I love the story, and thank you sharing so honestly with me. I have to tell you something. My family came up with a term for my entrepreneurial vision that they call my sparkly bits. And that's really what you're talking about is many of my sparkly bits are sort of crazy and go nowhere. But even the idea for this podcast was a sparkly bit that obviously was a good one. So I'm fascinated by your story. Um, Okay, so... How many advisors are currently under the United Capital umbrella today? There's about 100 heads of offices, which are our partners, the folks who run the offices, and then probably another 120 advisors supporting them. So around 200 advisors, they're quite a large, you know, we're focusing on the top advisors, really. Yeah. So what is United Capital's value proposition to advisors? Assume someone's never heard of it before, although you have to be living under a rock for that to be the case. But uh-huh. what is the value proposition? Well, the, the two, two big ideas. The first is that your responsibility as an advisor is to help clients live richly, not die rich. I think that many advisors answer the wrong challenge. And many of them, you know, in the old days, you were in the business to help maximize people's investments. Then they started doing planning, and it was really the goal was to help people not run out of money. And so with United Capital, I said, I want to go beyond that, and I want to help people not just not run out of money. I want them to maximize their money, to actually help them live a better life. As a consequence, it seemed to me the logical evolution of what advisors should be doing. And if you're going to do that, you need to ask a different set of questions, have a different set of tools, because you're going beyond simply making sure that people don't run out of money and you use the money and money guide. You're trying to find out today, the here and now, what can we do to improve the choices you're making, whether it's taking vacations or buying that second home or retiring or starting a new company. Those decisions are very different than are you going to run out of money? And so it's maximizing the use of your capital rather than simply making sure that you've always got capital. And so the question you're challenging and solving is very important. So we tell the advisors, first thing we're going to do is bring you gamification and tools to help you understand your clients better than anyone else. And what we mean by understanding is understanding why they work and the purpose of money in their life, which no one in our industry is yet doing broadly enough. And I suspect 10 years from now, everybody will be doing The second big thing we're doing is saying you need technology and scale so that you're practicing at the top of your license, so that you're doing the great work of meeting with clients. So we said, look, we want you to practice at the top of your license. You're a great CFP. That's what you should be doing. Let us do everything else for you. And that combination of things, a great client experience where you're solving and improving people's lives along with technology that allows you and the team that allows you to focus on what you do really well has meant that our advisors, when they join, have a huge surge in revenues, whether they do that as part of United Capital or, as you know, we have our FinLife platform where advisors can white label the whole technology and they see the same kind of productivity growth and revenue growth and profit growth because they can concentrate on what they're great at. And so as the ecosystem surrounding the independent space has expanded exponentially since 2005, there are what I would imagine are many competitors for United Capital. So when United Capital was first born, we talk about a world that didn't look like it does today. But aside from other aggregators 
in the independent space, like a Focus Financial Partners or NFP at the time. Mercer, there's so many, yeah. Right, but today you've got large RIA firms that themselves are private equity backed. You've got private equity investors. You've got clients wanting to invest in firms. So given this expanded universe of competition, first of all, what do you think of that competition in terms of United Capital versus each of them? And then what do you think about it in terms of thinking out, you say you're, you're always thinking ahead in terms of the next five years. What does that look like relative to the competition? I think by selling to Goldman, we've really said we're no longer in that race. We're in a different race now. There are two things that I think are going to be the, the cornerstones of success over the next 10 years, and they're not acquisitions. The first is, can you get organic growth? The firms that are most successful in our industry are not the acquisition firms. They're not United Capital or Mercer, while they might make a lot of headlines, firms that are most successful and the most profitable, the ones that have the most organic growth. And I use two examples of that that are really large and successful, despite whatever you might think of their leaders. One is Fisher, who has 50% margins and 100 billion in assets. And the other one is Creative Planning, what Peter Maluka is doing. And they are both organic growth firms. The reality is that Figuring out how to get organic growth is the single most important thing for an independent firm to have. And by joining Goldman and partnering with ACO, we have now for our offices a way of growing that doesn't require me acquiring firms. And in fact, will allow us to recruit advisors because we can give them hundreds of opportunities with multi-million dollar clients. That is unique and something that no one else that I know of can offer, which is a future of growth that is unquestionable. And so that's the one big thing. The second big thing is that I believe the independent advisor offering simply a financial plan and even financial life management standalone is not going to be enough. We're going to need to offer banking services and tax prep and estate planning work. And so you're going to need to be a full service financial services firm. Another big reason for selling to Goldman, whether it's a mortgage or tax prep or all the other things I've mentioned, well, joining Goldman allows us to do that. And again, I just believe that in the next 10 years, we're going to see a, a swing where the independent firms are going to be providing a much broader suite of services. And we're going to be offering that through FinLife. So if you're an independent firm, you can offer the full suite of financial services through Goldman Sachs and the FinLife partnership. And for our own advisors, they get the organic growth as well. So that combination I didn't know where else I'd find it. I, I think that those two things, I didn't believe I could solve it by myself. You know, in order to generate the organic growth, I would have had to spend tens and tens of millions of dollars, which I didn't have, to been all of my profitability, to generate a real organic growth strategy. And secondly, I didn't have the ability to actually offer banking services. And we tried to solve that for years and never succeeded. So I felt very much that those two pillars for the next 10 years are crucial to being a successful independent firm. That doesn't mean that acquisition firms won't successfully cash out, but I, I think it's going to be exceedingly rare. And obviously, Goldman isn't going to be acquiring another one of these in a hurry because they've acquired us. So now, how many banks are going to actually acquire these large independent firms? Some of them will go public, like Focus did, and some of them will end up lingering. But if you don't have organic growth, it's very hard. 
And so, first of all, it sounds like then the choice to sell to Goldman was your third iteration of getting ahead of the wave, the third big iteration of getting ahead of the wave, and that's extraordinary. But what was it that made the marriage to Goldman the right one? I mean, as opposed to other banks that also could have given you sort of a one-stop shopping experience. Why Goldman, I guess, is what I'm asking. Sure. Well, besides economics... There were two things that for me are non-negotiable. The first one is culture. You know, we, we had a, a non-negotiable on who had joined United Capital and we had a non-negotiable on who we joined. They were incredibly smart, super humble, really, really engaged, top to bottom, you know, everyone in the organization. So culturally, our people were Goldman people and it's a great brand. And the second big thing was They're not in every corner of the street. You know, you can't, it's not like a Bank of America or any other bank that that you can go to every street corner at every mall in America and find one. Goldman Sachs is an aspirational brand. And I think the ultimate aspirational brand in the financial services industry. So to find that home for our clients and for our advisors, I couldn't imagine a better combination. And I knew that if we didn't do it now, they would be gone. They would go figure out how to solve this problem and they wouldn't be there to acquire us two years from now. So really our only path, given that I couldn't imagine who else other than Goldman would be a good fit, would be to do a private equity deal and go public three years from now. And again, because I didn't know how it's going to get real organic growth and figure out how to do these banking services, I'm sure we would have figured it out if we had no choice. But the fact that Goldman had such cultural alignment made it work for us and solved the two biggest concerns I had for the next 10 years. So what about a standalone independent firm that isn't ready to sell, whether it be because they just have no interest in giving up control, they're having too much fun, they only started the business recently. So given your belief that what clients are going to want is sort of this all-encompassing experience, the ability to get everything under one roof, what options does it, do a standalone independent have for growth? Yeah, well, I'd say there are two things. First, you have to ask yourself, what problem am I solving for my clients? And, and if you look at who's succeeding in the non-financial services world, those that run platforms win. Uh, you know, Amazon is a platform. Netflix is a platform. Apple is a platform. When you look at any successful business, what they've realized is it's not what we sell, it's how we deliver it. That idea of how we deliver our services in a scalable, repeatable way is something too few firms spend time thinking about. But I would say the first, the most important thing is that you deliver a client experience that's memorable on the client's terms and simplifies their life and is additive to their life and worth the money. I would say most advisors are delivering the same thing. So, you know, you go to any advisor, you can't tell the difference between advisor A and B, C and D. You can't tell the difference on their websites. And when you come in, the first meeting feels exactly the same, no matter which office you go to, of which advisory firm you go to. And being that generic is not a winning strategy. You should decide how am I going to do something that's memorable, a platform that simplifies my clients' lives and is at their fingertips always. So that's the first. Second, you've got to figure out how do I get to these people in a cost-efficient way? And that is probably the biggest challenge. And you'll see this, by the way, Mindy, when you look at firms as often as we do, how many of them have really stopped growing in the last 
five years. Like it was really easy and now they've kind of plateaued. They're not getting new clients other than the occasional referral. And so they really, their success or failure really depends on whether the market goes up or down. And in order to be really valuable, you've got to get new clients because new clients create new blood, create new challenges. But the challenges, again, most clients have an advisor. Most of the baby boomers have an advisor. So you've got to offer something that's so unquestionably superior that people are willing to switch from where they are. But there's just not as much money in motion. And when you don't have as much money in motion because people are satisfied at Merrill Lynch, they're satisfied at Morgan Stanley, it becomes much tougher. It's a market share game. And so you've got to think about how do I partner with people? And this is the most important thing. Offload the things you're not great at so you can create a curated experience. And that's, you know, again, whether they partner with FinLife, with United Capital as a partner or as a licensee, figuring out how you partner with people that allow you to offer more services in an integrated way is really important. So, you know, Netflix doesn't make all the movies. They have lots of movies. Yeah. Uh, they're a platform. So again, I just think very few firms spend enough time thinking about strategy and what should we be doing to be valid and relevant to the next wave of consumers. So let me ask you a question. You're thinking in a lot of ways, especially rewinding a little what you said about um, the decision to partner with Goldman because it would give your clients and advisors access to everything they needed sort of all under one roof. Flies in the face of what the value proposition of independence in general has been about. So independence in general has defined itself in the last number of years as the notion of total open architecture, that not everything best in class could possibly be under one roof. And the notion of, of being able to shop the street for whatever it is, whether it be investment solutions, alternatives, managers, trust capabilities, lending, insurance, whatever it is, you know, you say partnering with a bank. So the notion of the best experience for clients comes from being able to shop the competition and create competition for price and service. So how does, let's talk about that for a second, how sort of traditional thinking in the independent space says it's all about being able to shop the street and you're saying yet you made the decision to do the exact opposite. Well, again, because we're under one umbrella that has the solutions doesn't mean that they're the only solutions. So I'll give you an example. We have a platform that allows us to now have a lot more managers at much better pricing because Goldman has negotiated that with both alternative investors and outside money managers. So we now have a much broader set of investment alternatives for our existing clients than we did alone because Goldman's much bigger than us, has much more scale and has an open architecture infrastructure. So that means that we end up with a lot better choices for our clients. The same is true with insurance. They've already pre-negotiated with insurance vendors at a fraction of what we would have to pay if we went independently because we're not as big. So what I'm saying is you can have one silo umbrella brand. That doesn't mean the underlying products are all created by your brand. What you have to do is have a platform that gives access to solutions. Again, using the Netflix analogy, some of it is proprietary content, but most of it is not. Most of the movies were not made by Netflix. What Netflix is, is a center for entertainment. And what I'm saying is that has to be true in our industry too, that you may have to become the solution. So what you're doing because of the size of a firm like Goldman is we can pre-negotiate with outside vendors and provide an integrated seamless experience for our clients, 
even if a lot of the solutions are not actually Goldman solutions. Got it. And how about the role of technology? It certainly changed how advisors work and respond to clients. So what do you think about these changes? And what about the role of technology with respect to United Capital and Goldman? Well, it is the single most important and disruptive force of our lifetime. And there's really two ways to think about technology. The first is it's changed the way we interact with the world. The average American spends five hours a day on their cell phone. If you're not on it, if you don't have an app, if you're not notifying your clients, if you're not using video to stay connected to them, it's very difficult to be competitive. That's the future of the world. You have to be on the mobile phone and be available 24-7 for your clients answering their questions. That doesn't mean you have to be on the phone. It means you have to be able to provide answers to them around the clock at their discretion when they have time. So that that means that technology and how we interact with the world is completely different. And the world of driving into my office and meeting twice a year, that means that for 363 days a year, you're not in front of them, you're gonna lose. So technology first and foremost is access. Secondly, it's how you run your office. So how does it create scalability and repeatability? And I like to think about if you run a really efficient advisory practice, it should look like a Starbucks where it doesn't matter who the barista is, the person's going to get the same cup of coffee, uh, customized to their needs, obviously. One person wants extra vanilla, another doesn't want any sugar at all, but the delivery of it is the same no matter who delivers it. Those are the two roles of technology, creating repeatable, scalable processes, and secondly, keeping you connected with your clients on their terms. And those two things are how we think about technology. We now have a team of 200 people that, thanks to joining with Goldman, are now working with us on improving and elevating the technology to accomplish those two goals on an ongoing basis. So again, it's inescapable, the role of technology in in being competitive. Other than technology, the industry landscape has gone through incredible changes. So what do you see of some of the the most positive major transformations with respect to the industry in the last, say, five or 10 years? I think it's really amazing what has happened to pricing. I mean, if you're an end consumer, the only thing that costs money now is the advisor. So it's been an amazing reduction in costs and efficiency for the end consumer which is really great. I would say, secondly, financial planning has become an expectation as a base principle in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, it was a 50-50 shot that you'd get an advisor who even did any planning. Now that's just, it's accepted that you're going to get a financial plan that gives you clarity. That's really powerful. So those two things, you know, the fact that we're doing more planning as, a, as an inst- industry, and secondly, that we're, we've driven the pricing down so efficiently, those are two huge wins for the end consumer. I also would say technology is not living up to its promise in many ways as well, because again, ultimately, this is about end consumers making better decisions. And we're not necessarily winning a lot of battles on that front. When you see how many people have still been sitting in cash throughout this entire 10-year voyage, it's kind of scary. And I don't think we've resolved the issue of how the heck do we make sure in this low interest rate environment that people have enough money to survive. So, But I think in, in general, the industry keeps getting better. It's much more client-centric than it's ever been, and that's really great for consumers. I couldn't agree with you more. And so what do you think is the next big thing? 
Well, the next big thing, I make no bones about this, it's helping advisors to do more human work. I have no doubt at all that financial plans can be built by technology, investments can be run by technology. What can't be done by anything but a human is give understanding, empathy, and judgment into a relationship. And I suspect the role of the advisor is going to become much more about financial life management than it is of uh, asset management or financial planning. So the logical evolution for our industry is for advisors to become much more involved in their clients' lives, be much more deep and broader in helping people thinking about big financial decisions that go beyond simply retirement. Because still today, 90% of advisors, the only problem they're solving for is retirement. And yet, that is in the distant future. Many people will never actually retire. What they're facing is a set of choices and trade-offs that the role of the advisor is to help me be better and happier today. And I think that, for me, is the really exciting voyage that will hopefully be part of shaping. There's this whole evolution of our industry into going from wealth management to financial life management. And so what about the firms themselves? Look, over the years, you've certainly had the privilege as an industry leader to interact and see many successful firms and many not so successful firms. So you talked about the importance of accelerating organic growth, and you mentioned a couple firms that you think are organic growth machines. But what do you think are the ingredients of a firm that will have the ability to maximize enterprise value at the end of the day? Well, I will say that maybe I'm a heretic in this. There are too many firms right now that that's their only goal, and they're only doing it by really doing acquisitions, borrowing money, and really taking a financial-only approach. That was never the case with United Capital. We wanted to have a good financial outcome, but our first and primary goal was to improve lives of our clients by helping them make better decisions. And our goal was always to build an industry-changing firm. It wasn't to maximize the financial well-being of our shareholders. That mattered, of course, but first and foremost, let's build a great company. I suspect, unfortunately, many of the large firms today are doing this far too much for financial outcome rather than really making an impact on the industry. And that ultimately doesn't work. You know, Eventually, what you end up when you have a lot of firms simply doing roll-ups for roll-up sakes and if they're not building a better business, the underlying business will not fundamentally improve because they're joining another enterprise. And as long as that's true, they ultimately don't work out so well for a lot of folks. So for me, I wish I saw more firms with a mission to improve the industry or a mission to improve client outcomes rather than simply, well, we're here to acquire firms and get to a very fancy outcome. But I'm I think a lot of the large firms, that's the way they they approach things. Again, not all of them, but some of them. Right. So I couldn't agree with you more that I think the, the vision or mission of any firm needs to begin and end with why am I doing this and how am I improving the lives of my clients? How can I do this better? But still, it's naive to think that as somebody is beginning to launch a firm or thinking about launching a firm or in the infancy, and they're looking at different options and ways to service clients, do I continue to work at Merrill Lynch or do I go independent? One of the benefits of going independent is to create an enterprise with enterprise value that can be sold and create competition and all of that. So while maximizing that value may not and shouldn't be the only reason, it's still a good reason and it's important. 
So what is it that an advisor who is, let's say, just beginning today, what are the things that those advisors um, can do or focus on to ensure they're building a firm that will have options at the day's end? Well, it, I'll give you one simple rule. Uh, the simple rule is that the value of the business is inversely correlated to your importance to the business. What do I mean by that? The more important I am to the success of this business, the less valuable the underlying business is. And that is anathema to most advisors who the world, rise, the sun rises and sets around them. And therefore, what they really have is a lifestyle business. Very rare is the advisor who's built a business that it is bigger than themselves. And that is the ultimate goal. If you want to have enterprise value, you cannot have people be dependent upon you. That means you have to give up decisioning. You have to you have to outsource. You have to create a great client experience. You have to make sure that decisions get made without you, that you can trust. Now, again, that most advisors will never get there. They'll simply build a good lifestyle business, hopefully make more money, which is why they're doing it as well, and do things in a way that they want. But what I find with a lot of advisors is that they still don't understand, look, in order for you to have something of value, you have to be less important to the business. Yeah. That is a bit of an anathema. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, and because they got successful by really b- trafficking in their own reputations, right? right? That's right. how they got started, right. all of us. That's how we started United Capital. It was, it was the Joshua. And in order for it to be valuable, it had to not be the Joshua. So if you were to build United Capital today, would you have built it the same way? Like what are the one or two things that with hindsight you would have done differently? Well, I think the amount of private equity money I took, I might've done that a little differently. I, fortunately, we never had any leverage. So I never had the pressure of you know millions, hundreds of millions of dollars of debt to get recapped. So that was a good thing that we did right. But I would say, you know, we had about, Half of the firm owned by private equity firms, and they were great partners, but I'm happy that they weren't at 70 or 80%, honestly, because their outcome, they are, as they should be as fiduciaries, primarily and only focused on the financial outcome. But what I would do differently today, I would say I would probably try to get, get the organic growth beyond the initial lift. I would figure that out sooner. So I think... We probably, because we did acquisitions, we were so focused on the client experience and delivering a great client experience. We really didn't spend a lot of time. What happens after the first 24 months to generate organic growth? We never commit enough capital to it. And I would say in this day and age, that would not be a choice. And if I was starting United Capital, I'd have to figure that out. Secondly, I'd have to have a full service firm. If I was trying to go independent today, I would try to figure the estate planning. I'd try to figure out the tax prep. I try to figure out how to be a fulsome financial services firm out of the gate, because if I were going to try to replicate it, I'd have to do something that's more evolved than what I have today in order to be different and go where the puck is going or rather where it's been. Uh, So those are the two big things. I do figure out the organic growth and then figure out how to actually deliver a scalable multi-financial services platform solution. Right. So... The truth of the matter is, this has probably been one of the most fascinating conversations 
of my career. I'm being honest with you. I've enjoyed it so much and I could go on and on and on, but I don't want to take up more of your time. So I hope you'll come back again another time. But one last question before I let you go. How has a day in the life of Joe Duran changed since the Goldman Sachs acquisition? Uh, a lot more time in New York, I'll tell you that. So uh, I'm just getting an apartment there and there's a lot more meetings. So I love everything we're doing, but there's, you know, larger companies, you've got, a, you've got a lot more people that you've got to keep informed. And candidly, it's incredibly exciting. Like it's, it's really refreshing in two ways. My life is very different. One, I don't wake up every night at three in the morning with a knot in my stomach going, I've got people relying on my decisions and 26,000 clients relying on my decisions. So that is a huge relief of burden that's been relieved off me. You know, that, that sole responsibility that if, if we screw up, it's my fault and not being there anymore is really helpful. And then the second is the opportunity is so vast with an institution this big that it opens all kinds of opportunities and there just aren't enough hours in the day for all the things that I think we can do. So those are the two big areas, you know, the lack of stress or the reduction of stress and then this really exciting set of opportunities that we've got to figure out how to get it all to happen in a reasonable time frame. you know, so prioritizing things. So I hope you'll make me a promise that as you figure things out and we fast forward a year or two and in this evolution of you figuring things out under the Goldman umbrella that you'll come back and tell us all about it. Of course. Thank you very much, Mindy. This was a lot of fun. Joe, thanks a million. Really appreciate your time. You bet. Thank you. Joe's perspective on the industry is straight out of the mind of a tried-and-true, uber-successful entrepreneur. And what's interesting is that many of his comments actually run contrary to commonly held beliefs about independence in general and the reasons behind the proliferation of mergers and acquisitions in the space. The most compelling takeaways from our conversation as I see it include the following. Advisors need to be aware that once they get bigger, they often spend more time doing things they're really not good at. Two, the most successful RIAs are not the acquisition firms, but rather those rooted in organic growth. And in an industry that has become much more client-centric, the independent firm of the future will need to offer a broader suite of services. To do so, they need to offload much of the minutiae and focus on creating a curated experience for clients. And ultimately, the value of a business is inversely correlated to the amount it is dependent upon its founder or owner. In our next episode, Jody Perry, president of Raymond James Financial Services, the independent contractor division, joins the show. As one of the top female executives in an industry defined by a lack of diversity, Jody talks about rising through the ranks of the firm, as well as what's in store for this popular landing spot for advisors seeking greater freedom and flexibility. I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for more valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to this series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908 879 1002 or mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note 
that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank Advisor Hub for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.